You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. Okay, it has been a minute since we have recorded. Um, there's been a lot of shit going on. Autumn got a new job. Yay. Congratulations, Autumn. Thanks, friend. Also, we have had like a bunch of shitty weather here. And then like not normal <laughs> Pacific Northwest shitty no. weather. Like, yeah, like extreme weather. Yeah, there's been windstorms and Autumn's gone out of power. I've lost power. And so it just recording was really rough. But we are here and we survived today with 54 mile per hour winds. Yeah. I don't know how we kept power all day, but here we are. (laughs) Here we are. We're ready to record. We're ready to talk some murder and get some stuff out. Yes. Yeah. I know you have anxiously been awaiting a new episode. So we're very excited I've been finally awaiting a new episode. (laughs) I know we just love it. It's such a connection for us. We just really like doing this. So it's been hard not having that outlet. Totally. I mean, it really has. And plus you and I get to get caught up a little bit and that's always nice. Yes. And we actually saw each other in in person. person recently for my birthday. We did. Autumn had a birthday. She turned 45. Excuse you, 49, <laughs> almost 50. <laughs> but yes, for real, 50. not that old. But for real, we got to see each other and celebrate a birthday. And I got to see Lulu. Yeah, that's right. And you have to tell them what she did. What did she do <laughs> with her hair? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, my daughter, Lucy, decided that she, she was ready for a haircut and she had really long hair, like past her bottom. So we went in and she cut off about six inches. Thanks, Stephanie. And, um, and then she decided she wanted to get some purple in her hair. So she got a little bit of purple on like the front part of her hair, like the bangs. And it looks so cute and she loves it and she feels super special. And I love that for her. It's so adorable. She looks like a little superhero. She does. And the thing is like my mom always told me when I was a kid, here's the deal. If you want to dye your hair, fine, but you have to have it dyed by a professional. So you don't fuck up your hair. So I'm just going to kind of keep with that same rule. And then Lucy can always have, you know, well cared for hair. I think that's the biggest thing is you just worry, like, especially with younger people, like bleach and frying their hair and I totally get it. She looks so cute. So she really does. She really does. We'll post a picture on Insta, but we'll like blur out her face just because she's so young. We don't want that for her, but we'll show the hair. Yeah. We'll show her hair though. Um, yep. And I have an awesome hairstylist, Stephanie, who I've seen since I was 12. I'm pretty sure, uh, for a really, really long time. She has a place called studio S in Linwood. Quick shout out. Um, and she's awesome and she can handle my big, crazy, curly, thick hair. So she's great. And Erin has the thickest hair. I really do. I'm really jealous of her hair. Actually, 
I have legit been asked if it was a wig on numerous occasions. So that's a real thing. <laughs> yes. It's just so luxurious and like thick and I'm very jealous. Luxurious unless like rain hits it. And then it's just a big frizzy mess. <laughs> yeah. Like, like sure. Monica's hair when she on friends, when she was in the Bahamas. I don't even know what that is. Cause I didn't really watch friends. Oh my gosh. We can't be friends. I didn't watch friends or Grey's Anatomy. Come at me, bro. Yeah. Which are my two favorite shows. Uh, Oh, and the other one I didn't watch was Dawson's Creek. People get so mad at me about that. Okay. So it's kind of like she's picking on me because those are my three favorite shows. There you go. (laughs) Now I do watch Unsolved Mysteries. So you're covered there. Yes. Those are my favorite shows unrelated to true crime. So I've been sitting on this for two weeks and I am literally dying to tell you my case. Okay. Spring it on me. It's local. And I like it. I have a personal connection, sort of. Interesting. Okay. I'm here for this. You're intrigued, right? Yes. You have my attention. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go. I'm going to get started. Okay. Enough I'm ready. Chit chat. I'm ready to talk murder. Let's get to it. <laughs> okay. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to do a title on this one because I think it gives it away. Yeah. Okay. Jake Bird was born December 14th, 1901 in quote, somewhere out in Louisiana where there ain't no post office. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) He had told folks that he had a tough childhood growing up in poverty with two brothers, Andrew and Lem. His parents were Charles and Deli Bird. Jake left his hometown at age 19 and began to ride the rails, traveling across the country doing manual labor as a transient railroad gandy dancer, which is a term I didn't know. I was about to say, what is a gandy dancer? It's a slang term used for early railroad workers who laid and maintained railroad tracks in the years before it was done by machines. I had to look that up. Huh. <laughs> so I was like, what's the hell is a Gandhi dancer? Yeah, that's really bizarre. I was hoping it was some type of, you know, exotic dancer, but it was not, unfortunately. Big letdown. Anyway, it was this type of work that helped build his strength. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to jump into the future because that was just a quick backstory. Jake Bird is now 45 years old and he's in Tacoma, Washington. On Thursday, October 30th, 1949, he breaks into the home of Bertha Clute and her daughter, Beverly June Clute. At 2.30 in the morning, Tacoma police officers, Andrew Sabudis and Evan Davies were dispatched to 1007 South 21st Street to investigate reports of screams emanating from inside the residence. As they approached, a barefoot man ran out of the back door into a yard and then crashed through a picket fence. The two patrolmen ran after him and a chase ensued. After scaling several more backyard fences, the fugitive was finally stopped by a high fence and cornered in an alley behind 2122 South J Street. He pulled out a jackknife or a switchblade, according to different sources. Sorry, Stabby Jim. I don't know exactly which type of blade was used, but I know you want to know. Erin. I don't know. Not to interrupt, 
but at my birthday dinner last night, my dad pulled out three brand new pocket knives to tell and show everybody. It's very on brand. And then told us he had three more in the car. Well, obviously <laughs> just had to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Back to what's happening. So he's cornered, right? Pulls out a jackknife or switchblade <laughs> and, uh, and he attacks the officers, cutting Davies in the hand, stabbing Sabutis in the shoulder. Officer Sabutis was a former prize fighter known as Tiny Lamar. He's, <laughs> he's <laughs> I know. Stop. That sounds not fierce at all. <laughs> right? He subdued the assailant with a left hook to the jaw and a kick to the groin. After the fight, the prisoner was taken to Tacoma General Hospital by Officer John Hickey in a patrol wagon, where he received treatment for head and face lacerations. Sabutis was admitted to St. Joseph's Hospital with severe back wounds, and Davies had cuts on his hands that were stitched and bandaged. When the police officers entered the residence, they found Bertha Clute, age 52, dead in her bedroom, adjacent to the kitchen the body of her daughter, Beverly June Clute, age 17, on the kitchen floor. Both women have been bludgeoned to death with an axe, which was left at the crime scene. And I know I'm doubling up on axe murders, but just deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say, wait a second. I know, I know. Just really love a good axing. (laughs) Oh my Yep. <laughs> oh, this is that was real well. That okay. I mean, we we're back. We're back. <laughs> Detective Lieutenant Earl Corneliuson determined that an attempted uh, sexual assault had happened on Bertha Clute before she was intentionally slain. Beverly June heard her mother's screams and apparently dashed from her upstairs bedroom into the kitchen where she encountered the assailant and was murdered. Uh. I know. Jake was interrogated by Detective Lieutenant Sherman Lyons at the Tacoma City Jail, where he dictated and signed a confession in the presence of four officers. His confession stated that he entered the Clute residence through a locked door to commit an easy burglary, in quotation. He brought along an ax that he had found in a nearby shed to bluff off anyone who tried to bother me. Removing his shoes, he snuck into Bertha Clute's bedroom and stole $1.50 from her purse. When he returned to the kitchen, he turned around to find Bertha standing behind him. So he told her that he only wanted the money in her shoes and then he would leave. But then suddenly, Beverly June grabbed him from behind. With a fierce struggle, it ended up resulting in the deaths of both women. Jake added that he thought the policeman would shoot him if they had found him in the bushes, so he attacked them with his knife. Now, judging by the jailhouse mugshot, Jake Bird was pretty clean-cut and innocent-looking, but his behavior and extensive criminal record would prove otherwise. In fact, he had a very lengthy criminal record, including burglaries, assaults, attempted murder, and murder. Jake estimated he had served about 15 years in various prisons for committing crimes. So you could say he was a jailbird. Oh, God. (laughs) Definitely going to uh, 
delete that from the podcast. Don't you dare. (laughs) Over the years, he had never stayed in one place long. Since he had worked on the rails or getting an odd labor job along the way, it had allowed him to take up a life of stalking and murdering women in all the towns he visited. On Friday, October 31st, 1947, Prosecutor Earl Mann charged Jake Bird in Pierce County Superior Court with first-degree murder, but only for the death of Bertha Clute. It was customary to file only one charge in multiple homicides where failure to obtain a conviction on the first offense would allow the filing of additional murder charges. In autumn, this is where things are going to get frustrating and much worse. There were delays in the trial. Judge Edward Hodge appointed James Selden, a former Pierce County prosecutor at his defense counsel. Judge Edward Hodge appointed James Selden, a former Pierce County prosecutor at his defense counsel. At his arraignment, Jake Bird pleaded not guilty and the trial was set for Monday, November 24th, 1947. At a motion hearing on November 14th, defense attorney Selden requested a change of venue stating that Jake would not get a fair trial in Pierce County. He also asked to be relieved as Bird's attorney, informing the court that Jake Bird had wanted to represent himself. Hmm. Sounds like another infamous serial killer we know from the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mr. Bundy. Mm-hmm. Judge Hodge denied both requests. The trial began on schedule in the Pierce County Courthouse before Judge Hodge, but was slowed by jury selection. Questioning the prospective jurors revolved around their impressions of the crime gained from the news media, where Jake Bird, as a black man, would not get a fair trial. Four jurors were excused when it was learned that they had recently served on another first-degree murder trial in which a defendant was convicted and sentenced to hang, Which, by the way, that's kind of crazy that they were serving on two first degree murder trials. Mm -hmm. Like, who gets that card? Yeah, that it is. Like jury duty for something boring. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, by the end of the day, a jury of nine men and three women were selected and the court was recessed until 9 a.m. the next morning. Trial proceeded at a rapid pace and was concluded in just one and a half days of testimony. Prosecuting attorney Patrick Steele's strategy was to prove that the death of Bertha Clute was premeditated, thereby qualifying the defendant for the death penalty. Weighing heavily in the trial was evidence regarding the murder of 17-year-old Beverly June Clute, who was bludgeoned to death in the kitchen when she went to her mother's defense. Blood and brain tissue from both victims were found on Bird's clothing. His bloody fingerprints were also found in the house and on the axe, and his shoes were found at the murder scene. So pretty damning. Right. The state then introduced a surprise witness, Tacoma police officer John Hickey, who testified that he and officer Russell Scadham gave Bird a beating while he was in custody. Hickey said, I regret to say that I lost my temper after returning from the Clute home and viewing the terribly hacked bodies of the two women. I had asked Bird as we sat in the patrol wagon why he murdered the two women. He said he didn't do it. I asked him who did it then. He said it was Leroy. Who's Leroy? I asked it. Oh, another guy around town. 
Bird replied. You're lying, I said. And he looked at me with a smug and insolent look. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I hit him in the jaw first with my fist, knocking him to the ground of the patrol wagon. Then I struck him several other times with my nightstick until he said, don't kill me. That brought me to my senses and we took him to the hospital where a nurse said he wasn't badly hurt. That quote was from the Seattle PI. Jake Bird was guilty of this and many other crimes, but there's no excuse for police brutality. Later, when Prosecutor Steele moved to enter Jake's signed confession into evidence, defense attorney Selden objected, declaring that it had been obtained under duress and therefore inadmissible. But Judge Hodge disagreed, ruling that there was no relationship between the beating and his voluntary confessions and admitted it into evidence. Despite the continued strenuous objections by Selden, the confession was read into record and then the prosecution rested its case. Defense attorney Selden rested the defense without calling Jake or any other witnesses to the stand. Closing arguments were begun on Wednesday morning, November 26th, 1947, when the case went to jury at noon. After deliberating only 35 minutes, the jury returned its verdict. Jake Bird was found guilty of first-degree murder, and the jury voted to impose the death penalty. Oh, wow. Jake, who had been impassive throughout the entire trial, sat unmoved as Judge Hodge read the verdict. On his way back to the Pierce County Jail, Bird asked the five deputy sheriffs guarding him, what's all the excitement about? On Saturday, December 6, 1947, Judge Hodge sentenced Jake Bird to be hung in the gallows at the Washington State Penitentiary on January 16, 1948. After a motion for, the, for a new trial was denied by Judge Hodge, defense attorney Selden told the court that he had done everything in his power to defend Bird and that no further appeals would be made on his behalf. Then Selden declared to the Tacoma News Tribune, I feel whenever any 45-year-old man gets the idea that no lives are safe to anyone except his own, that man is a detriment to society and should be obliterated. Which is like really harsh. Yes, obliterated is a very strong word. It sure (laughs) is. Um, but he did like murder shit ton people. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong, but <laughs> when Judge Hodge asked Jake for comment, and this is the part that's going to get you all freaked out. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. He declared, I was given no chance to defend myself. My own lawyers just asked you to hang me. They apologized for defending me. If they're so reluctant to defend me, then why did they contest the prosecution's proof of murder? and now say that everything is proven. At the end of his 20-minute speech, he declared, I'm putting the hex of Jake Byrne on all of you who had anything to do with my being punished. Mark my words, you will die before I do. What? Yeah. This This became known as the Jake Bird hex. And within a year, five men connected with this trial died. What? Oh, yeah. I'm going to elaborate on that in a minute. But yeah, (laughs) I knew you were going to love this one because it's murder and a hex. Anyway, (laughs) you're right. You know me so well. (laughs) I know. 
On Sunday, December 7th, 1947, Pierce County Under Sheriff Joseph Carpatch and Deputy Michael Waverek took Bird in a patrol wagon to the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla to await his execution. Shortly after his arrival, Bird began confessing to his involvement in a dozen murders that took place over the span of 20 years. On January 6th, 1948, at the request of Governor Walgren, Pierce County Prosecutor Patrick Steele and the Tacoma Police Detective Lieutenant Sherman Lyons went to the penitentiary to listen to the confession. In an obvious bid for reprieve, Bird offered to tell them more to clear his conscience. Steele told the press, we want to give him a chance to tell it, but we don't intend to permit him to use what he might to what he might have withheld as means to add a few days to his life. So basically they think he's stalling so that he doesn't have to be hung right away. Right. Over the next several days, Steele and Lyons took extensive notes on Bird's statements, which they compiled into a 174-page report for the governor's office. On January 15, 1948, Jake Bird finally won a 60-day reprieve from Governor Walgren by claiming that given the time, he would clear up at least 44 murders that he committed or participated in during his travels. His confession brought a throng of investigators from across the nation to interview him at the state penitentiary. Of these 44 confessed murders, only 11 were substantiated, but Bird knew more than enough knowledge about so many others to be the prime suspect. So they believe he was really telling the truth over these 44 murders. Police from several states took the opportunity to close the books on many unsolved murders. In his travels, Jake Bird had murdered people, mostly women, in Illinois, Kentucky, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas, South Dakota, Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and Washington State. Jesus. I know. In the meantime, Byrd appealed his conviction with the Washington State Supreme Court. He personally argued his case before the Supreme Court justices, stating that Judge Hodge had made several judicial errors and demanded a new trial. On November 30th, 1948, his petition for the state to for a retrial was denied. On December 3rd, 1948, Judge Hugh Rosalini signed another death warrant ordering Jake Bird to be hung on January 14th, 1949. Bird's attorney, Murray Taggart of Walla Walla, immediately moved for a stay of execution to permit the filing of an appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals. The motion was granted on the condition that the court would agree to review the case. When the U.S. Court of Appeals refused to review the case, Judge Rosalini set Byrd's execution date for July 15th. Attorney Taggart requested another stay of execution to permit the filing of another appeal, but the motion was denied. Also, he murdered like a shit ton of people and confessed to it. Right. So of course, they're going to keep denying him. Like, they're not going to be like, oh, yeah, now we're going to let it. <laughs> right. Like now, now we might listen to you. 
especially in that time period, they were not going to give any more appeals. That was no. going to happen. No. And I mean, 44 murders are nothing to scoff at. No, that is a lot, a lot. Undeterred, Taggart filed three more petitions on Byrd's behalf, but the U.S. Supreme Court refused to review any of it. The last time they got a case was July 14th, 1949. Byrd's last hope was an act of ex- executive clemency from Governor Langley, but Langley chose not to interfere with the execution. Finally, on Thursday night, July 14th, 1949, Jake Bird ate his last meal on death row, and he talked with his attorney for about two hours. Bird told Taggart that he could be a good loser as long as he felt that everything possible had been done to save his life. Later that night, he was moved to a holding cell near the gallows where he was shaved and dressed in new clothes. I don't know why he was shaved. Yeah, me. Well, yeah, because he was hanged, right? Yeah. I mean, they usually did that for electric chair, right? Yeah, but not for hangings. I just thought it was really strange. Yeah, that is really strange. Just after midnight, Bird walked 10 feet from the cell into the gallows, accompanied by Warden Tom Smith and two prison guards. He said nothing to the 125 witnesses who gathered in the room but muttered some comment to one of the guards. A volunteer prison chaplain, Reverend Ornell, started to read a note from Bird declaring that he bore no malice towards anyone and sought forgiveness. But before he finished, the trap door was sprung, dropping Bird five feet to his death. Jake Bird was hanged at 12.20 a.m. on July 15, 1949. His body was taken down 14 minutes later And the prison physician, Dr. Elmer Hill, pronounced him dead. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the prison cemetery, identified only as convict number 21520. Bird willed his personal fortune, $6.50, to his appeals attorney, Murray Taggart. Although not formally educated, Bird gained a reputation as a jailhouse lawyer often arguing his own case before court and helping out other inmates throughout his stay in prison. His knowledge of the law, together with the help of people against the death penalty, enabled him to delay his execution for a year and a half, which is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Bird's case failed to capture the attention of the national press, even though he he confessed to committing or being involved in at least 44 murders throughout the country. But history still marks him as one of the nation's most prolific serial killers. Yeah, 44. Now back to the Jake Bird hex. The five men with Bird's trial who died within the year of the Jake Bird hex were Edward Hodge, the Supreme Court judge, Joseph Carpatch, the Pierce County undersheriff, George Harrigan, uh, Pierce County court reporter, Sherman Lyons, the police detective lieutenant, and James Selden, Byrd's first defense attorney. According to the Tacoma News Tribune, all of these men died from heart attacks. Wow. 
A sixth man, a Washington state penitentiary guard, also assigned to death row, died of pneumonia two months before Bird's execution. And all of them, every single one of them died exactly like he said, that before he would die, they would all die. And they and they did. So it's kind of crazy and crazy that they all died of heart attacks, too. Yeah, that is very weird. Um, I'm going to do a quick shout out to my friend, Sayla, who actually lives near the house Bertha and Beverly Clute uh, were murdered in for bringing this case to me and letting me know about that infamous hex, um, as well as sending her husband out in the middle of a storm to take pictures of the actual house for our Instagram. <laughs> so keep an eye out for that. And thank you again for doing that for me. That's awesome. <laughs> my sources were the Seattle Times, the Tacoma News Tribune, Murderpedia, southsoundtalk.com and historylink.org. That was great. I loved the hex. Right. I knew you would. I was like, <laughs> all it needs is ghosts and autumn would be so in yes. <laughs> ghosts and murder. It was like the perfect combination, right? If only there was a whole thing about how he still haunts the Walla Walla penitentiary, but that's, Oh, I'm sure there is. Does. Yeah. yeah. I was about to say, I'm sure there is. He's, he sounds like he'd be a haunter. It's kind of crazy, though, like the whole thing. I mean, obviously, the hex and the coincidence of the deaths is very interesting. But and that and that he was one of the most prolific serial killers. And yet I had never heard of him. I hadn't either. And he was local and he was local. So I thought that that was really interesting. When I first started reading it, I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I can do two axe murders back to back. But I was like, fuck it. Yes, I will. I will do a bunch of experts. I mean, you kind of get into a groove. It, I mean, it was. I do. Dismemberment. Dismemberment. Yeah. And now it's axe murders. Which is also kind of dismemberment. So. Yes. In a way it is. There's that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it ties in. And I just do a lot of cases of, on young children. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's oh. that. <laughs> Yeah. We, we all have our things, Aaron. We all have our things. Okay. Sure. I mean, next time I won't, but when Sayla had sent this one to me, I was just like, I have to do it. I have to do it because I already knew you would die when you heard the tech, the, the whole thing about the hex. I mean, yes. not literally totally, um, but I just thought it was really interesting. I also think it's interesting that he was, you know, so intelligent that he was able to delay his court. Um, you know, a year and a half of his mm-hmm. execution, which is pretty impressive for the that, time. It was, it totally is. That, he I had mean, no education, but there were other, other inmates that he did end up helping, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. I agree. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, so he murdered, he murdered some ladies and that's how he got caught. And then he ended up confessing, but 44 mm-hmm. freaking murders. That's a lot. That is, that's a lot, like a lot, and, a lot. And the thing is, is like only 11 of them were substantiated because they could prove for sure it was him. But the other ones, they said he was still like top suspect. They just didn't have enough actual evidence to prove it. You know what I mean? Yes. Like they knew he did it, but they did not have the evidence to prove it like in a court. I really liked that. I know. And you got a bunch of unsolved murders solved. So also up your alley. Yes. You are a hundred percent correct. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, that's it for my case this week. I promise to not do an ax murder next week, but I don't, don't promise, promise that. 
you know, Don't. I'm going to promise that there's not going to be an ex involved. Hmm. I won't say that there won't be dismemberment, but okay. <laughs> don't go that far. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There might be, I can't say, but there will be, <laughs> I will make sure there's no act. Oh man. Okay. If you yeah. say so. Maybe I'll do a real good knifer one for, uh, for stabby Jim. Oh, he'd love that. Yeah. <laughs> right up his alley, right up his alley. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break so you can hear from our sponsors and we will be right back. And we are back. Are you ready for my story? I am so ready. There are no children that die in this story. Is there an axe? <laughs> Not an axe. Okay. Not an axe. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, not an axe. <laughs> okay. okay. You, you ready? Yeah. It's the story of Rebecca Becky Weaver Vargas. Rebecca Ann Weaver, who went by Becky, was born on November 13, 1968, in Ogden, Utah. She had been best friends with Melinda Vargas since they were 15 years old. Melinda has said of Becky, when she first met her, she thought Becky was so pretty that she thought she was going to be stuck up and not have anything in common. But that was exactly the opposite. They had a lot in common and quickly were inseparable. In 1987, when she was 19 years old, Becky met Melinda's older brother, Stephen Vargas. And despite him being 13 years her senior, the two had an instant connection. And with Melinda's blessing, the two began dating. Stephen worked as a realtor and managed local apartments he made a good living for himself. The couple moved in together and within 18 months, their first daughter, Madeline, was born. Madeline, who everyone called Natty, was an absolute daddy's girl and Stephen doted on her. When Maddie was two, they welcomed another little girl on June 18th, 1990, the day after Father's Day who they named Stevie. Aww. Well, Madeline, isn't that cute? I like that name. I had, a fr- I had a friend named Stevie that I met at camp. I just think it's so cute. And his name was Steven. So it was kind of like a play yeah, on his name. Adorable. It's really cute. While Madeline was a daddy's girl, Stevie only wanted her mom. To Stevie, Becky was her whole world. The couple were amazing parents and their daughters were the center of their universe. They would spend most days as a family and during the summer, they would be outside playing and eating their favorite food, popsicles. Cute. Isn't that cute? (laughs) Maddie and Stevie grew up really close. They appeared to have the ideal family. Steven took good care of Becky and the girls financially. And everyone said they had a house full of love. Stephen and Becky had never seen the need to get legally married, despite living together and having two children. They loved each other, and that seemed to be enough for them for a while. Their family has said they were inseparable from the moment they met and described them as each other's everything. On a trip to Vegas in 1991, The couple decided spontaneously to make their relationship legal and got married. 
Stephen really enjoyed married life. He was head over heels in love with Becky and totally devoted to her. If someone even looked at Becky wrong, he was ready to fight. Melinda noticed that Becky was spending less and less time with her. At first, she thought it was because she was busy raising two young daughters. But as time went on, it became apparent that it was less about the time spent with her girls and more about Stephen controlling Becky and telling her that she was not allowed to spend time with his sister any longer. Stephen began to really isolate Becky from everyone. He wanted her. mm -hmm, He wanted her all to himself. Despite the problems that seemed to be arising, the couple kept them private. Becky never confided in her best friend of anything wrong. Other than that, she did miss spending time with her. Melinda, being her best friend, just knew that things were not as they seemed and that she was torn between the love she had for Stephen and the love she had for Melinda. Melinda knew something was just not right. In 1993, after two years of marriage, Becky shocked all her family and friends by filing for divorce from Stephen. She stated she needed space from the intense marriage. The couple split amicably and vowed to make their daughter's happiness a priority. They spent a lot of time together as a family, and it seemed to bring the ex-spouses closer and closer together. So much so that in January of 1994, about a year after their divorce, the couple decided to give their marriage another shot. This time, they had a big wedding where, where they celebrated their love with their family and friends. Having met and started a family when Becky was so young, it felt like the time apart had really helped them grow and come back together. Hmm. At first, everything was going great. Becky was able to hang out with Melinda again and was really happy. However, it wasn't long until Stephen began to get jealous and controlling again. He wanted the control that he had on her originally, and she wasn't going to let him have it this time. Becky began to feel isolated again, and after just 10 months into their second marriage, she asked for another divorce. Stephen, extremely heartbroken, begged her to wait until after the holiday season for their girls. He didn't want to ruin their Christmas. Or he wanted to control her. Mm -hmm. But Becky agreed to this agreement. Always wanting. Becky, no. I know. Always wanting to put her children first. Christmas came and went. And Becky found an apartment to move into about 15 minutes outside of Ogden, Utah. The apartment was close enough so that they both could easily co-parent the girls. As it had always been, the children were the main focus. Which is how it should be. Yes. It seems like they're co-parenting so great. And the girls have said they didn't even notice their parents split. Yeah. They had both began seeing other people. It seemed that Steven was finally letting go of her and she was enjoying the dating life. She had even introduced her new boyfriend to her friend, Melinda and Melinda's husband. 
Melinda saw that she had that spark back again. Three days after Christmas, on December 28, 1995, Becky Vargas was found murdered outside of her apartment around 6.30 a.m. Oh, no. And it was Melinda, her best friend and ex-sister-in-law, that discovered her body. No, that makes it so much worse. So much worse. Becky was only 27 years old. That is really sad. It's so tragic. Could you imagine finding my body? No, I mean, I dream about it all the time. Stop it. (laughs) No, that would be absolutely (laughs) devastating to, to not only lose your dearest friend, but then also to find them in that way is horrific. Like the worst. Yeah. Immediately detectives are on the scene. Becky was found outdoors surrounded by dead and dry leaves in the side yard of the apartment building that she was moving into. She had been violently attacked. Her hair saturated with blood. It became very obvious early on that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. A set of keys were found near her and detectives believed that she had been attacked while trying to get into her apartment. Becky's sweatshirt and bra had been pushed up. However, her jeans were still on and zipped. Well, that's good. The detectives believed that the killer had tried to stage the scene as if she had been sexually assaulted, but did not find evidence of her actually being sexually assaulted. Well, that's. Uh, at least something Mm -hmm. they found a flashlight at the scene with blood and hair on it and determined this must be the murder weapon the source of the blunt force trauma what was really puzzling to the investigators there were two there were two pools of blood suggesting that becky had been attacked in one spot and dragged to the second spot where she ultimately was discovered I, that's so sad. What could have possibly happened to this mother of two? They needed to speak to Melinda right away. She was her best friend and the one to have discovered her body. Did she know something that would help them? Police bring Melinda to the station and ask her to walk her through the discovery. The story she tells them is a little chilling. Melinda opens up with her receiving a phone call from her brother, Stephen, the night before. Stephen was asking her if she had seen or heard from Becky, which she had not that evening. He let Melinda know that he had taken Becky and their daughters out to dinner and a movie earlier in the evening, and she promised to let him know when she made it to her apartment safely. But he hadn't heard from her yet, and she wasn't answering his calls. He asked Melinda if she could go over to her apartment and check on her to make sure everything was okay. Melinda agreed and brought her husband with her. They arrived at Becky's apartment around midnight. Upon arrival, they went around the back of the complex. Melinda and David could hear moaning coming from inside Becky's apartment. What? Melinda wanted to go in still. But David convinced her to let her be, and that clearly she was keeping company and didn't want to disturb her. Oh, they thought she was like 
in Mm a sexual act. Yeah. They left and drove to a payphone to call her brother to give him an update. They let him know that Becky was home and that they heard some noises coming from the apartment. The police then know they needed to get Stephen in for some questioning to find out what he was doing that evening. Stephen came into the station and they asked him to go over the events of the evening with Becky. Stephen told them that he had taken Becky and the girls to dinner and then they went to the movies and saw Toy Story. He had said that after the movie, Becky came back to the house and grabbed some items to take to her new apartment. He also added that after he spoke to his sister, he did drive by Becky's apartment because he was worried about her and ran into Melinda and her husband, David. Police were then confused as to why Melinda left this part out of her statement. Well, I was going to say, why would she not say that she saw him there? Right. She had never mentioned running into Stephen that evening. They needed to speak to her again. When confronted, Melinda claimed that she was in such shock from what she had seen that she completely forgot that her and David had seen Stephen at a nearby intersection and they had visited Becky's apartment a second time. This time it was very quiet, so they left for the evening to go home. Even though the police find this series of events a little suspicious, they have no evidence against Melinda, David, or Stephen, so they let all three of them go without being held. This is very fishy. Mm-hmm. I don't like uh, it. <laughs> I don't like it at all. A little over a week goes by before they get their first break in the case. A man in Cheyenne, Wyoming, had called the police department and identified himself as Robert Escobar, Stephen's half brother. Robert told police that on December 22nd, 1995, his brother had asked him to drive to Ogden, Utah and kill his ex-wife, Becky. He told Stephen no and believed he was only joking. Well, yeah, what the fuck, dude? Right? Upon hearing this, police obtain a search warrant for Stephen Vargas's home and car. Investigators find inside of his vehicle dried leaves, with a red substance on them. Remember, Becky was found in her yard with dried leaves everywhere. Oh, I remembered. <laughs> <laughs> they test the substance and it comes back as a perfect match to Becky's blood. Uh huh. This was a break that they needed. And on January 11th, 1996, Stephen Vargas was arrested and charged with the premeditated murder of Rebecca Vargas. Stephen maintained his innocence throughout the trial. However, he was unable to convince the jury of this. And on November 14th, 1996, they found him guilty of the murder of his ex-wife, Becky. He was sentenced to five years. Yes. Five years? To life. But the fact that the word five years is even in there, that that's even a possibility that he could get out of five years. Yes. Doesn't make me happy at all. That makes me so angry. Yes. I was extremely upset that he was sentenced to what I felt was kind of a light sentence. The five years really got to me. (laughs) Yeah. But I was pleasantly surprised to find out that he is still behind bars. And there's a little bit of an update to this case. Oh, let's hear it. 
Stephen never admitted guilt until a parole hearing in 2016 when he finally came clean on what exactly happened that evening in December of 1995. I wonder what changed. Okay, go ahead. Tell, Tell me first. On December 27th, 1995, after dinner and the movie with Becky and his daughters, once their girls fell asleep, he went with Becky to her apartment. He admitted to being pissed, jealous, and embarrassed, and that he had grabbed a hammer and hit Becky eight times and left her for dead and drove home to his children. Oh, my God. Wait, it gets worse. No. He had called his sister Melinda to go over and check on her so that she would be the one to find her and he would have an alibi of being at home with his girls. Oh my God. Why would he do that to his sister? When she called him back and told him that she had heard moaning, he knew that Becky was still alive. No. And went back to finish the job. He arrived back at Becky's apartment, found her alive in the leaves dragged her to a different area in the backyard with his flashlight hit her in the head until he was positive she was no longer alive oh my god i hate that absolutely horrific really so that bad. moaning noises they heard weren't coming from her apartment she was literally outside with them oh my god isn't that, that is horrible awful Awful. Also, he left his kids like. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, he did murder someone, so it's not like he's got like scruples. Yeah. Right. But I'm like, what the fuck? Right. Not only did he kill the mother of his children, he had his own sister discover her brutally murdered body. Words cannot express the disgust for this human being. He had admitted that the reason he put his daughters and Becky's family through the trial was because he was a coward and didn't want to admit to his daughters that he had killed their mother. He told the parole board, I was pissed and jealous and embarrassed and mad. Everything went haywire in my head. He said, according to an audio recording of the hearing, I thought I struck her a couple of times, but the autopsy said I hit her eight times. She couldn't defend herself. I was a lot bigger and stronger. I fucking hate this. Once hearing this confession, Stephen's family members, including his daughters, wrote to the parole board, begging them not to release him. Oh, thank God. For a minute, I was holding my breath like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> yes. Oh, phew. Becky's daughter, Maddie, told the parole board at the time, I know the prison is overcrowded. You've been on your best behavior and you're getting older, but you do not deserve to breathe the air that our mom could have. You don't deserve to walk amongst us. You chose our future long ago, but now is our time to fight for our freedom from you. Oh, his parole was denied. I know it like chokes me up. I know. He was paroled. His parole was denied. And a new hearing date is set for May 2026 when he will be 70 years old. I hope he never receives parole. Yeah. yeah. My sources were ID Channel, American Monster, 
the blog It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere in the <laughs> Salt Lake Tribune. Sorry, that made me- is that cute name for a blog? It really is. Is that a, that story was horrible. horrible. And I haven't found a single podcast that covered it. I just thank it, God. Thank his, I mean, his poor fucking kids. I know. And I try to find out what happened to his children. Like, yeah, but the, sometimes they want a lot of anonymity and stuff. Right. Because, but, I mean, awful. They, I mean, and that stuff follows you. you know? Well, they appeared on American Monster on the ID channel and they yeah. talked about it and stuff. And their last names are now Weaver, which was her maiden last name. Good. So I have a feeling that like her family raised them. And from what I could tell, they live actually in Tacoma, Washington now. Oh, interesting. And I had a Tacoma. Mm-hmm. That's why I was like, mm, I think that's our connection. There's I don't a- know for sure, but sure. Ooh, I have the hiccups. I don't know for sure, but that's yeah. what it, I just, you know, it seemed like they turned out to be really good people. And I just good. feel really bad for them. I mean, her words were pretty powerful. Right. And she was the daddy's girl. Yeah, that's just so sad. It's so sad. It's so tragic. And I mean, it didn't have to be that way. No, the whole thing. I mean, none of it had to be that way. Just no. some fucking controlling jealous guy. Yes. It just it pisses me off though. He didn't even know how many times he hit her and no. Well, and then he's like, Oh, I guess I hit you know, I found out later I hit her eight his, times. And then to put his sister in the position of having to find her right. Sister. Like and he knew that was her best friend. Yeah. No, that's so fucked up. You know, the moment you said isolating her, I was like, oh God, it was him. Mm-hmm. It was totally him the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. I know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this was, this was an <laughs> interesting episode, but we're back, but we're back <laughs> and we will be back again next week. Storms mm-hmm. permitting. And yes. <laughs> We will, uh, we'll have some new shit for you and, uh, do go to our Instagram page though. Murder, not yes, murdering please. because my friend's husband <laughs> braved the storm to take photos of this house. Yes. We're very also, appreciative. That is so very cute. appreciative above <laughs> and beyond, but that's what kind of true crime listeners we've got out here. So yes, we have super fans. <laughs> we do. And we're, we really do. If you have any suggestions, I noticed lately we've had an uptick in our listeners. So welcome to our podcast. Yes. Welcome. And, welcome. Um, and as we've had more listeners, we do love to hear from you or hear suggestions, or if you have a connection to a murder or one that you just really is stuck in your mind and you want us to cover besides the don't fuck with cats guy. We won't do that. Yes. One. We can't said. do that one. <laughs> um, then just send us an email to info at murder, not murdering.com, or you can DM us on Instagram and we will, uh, we'll add it to the list. So thank you again so much for listening. We're so happy to be back yes. and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.